William B. Erdman's publishing company is proud to sponsor the Bridging Theology podcast. With a history spanning over 100 years, Erdman's publishes the finest literature in theology, biblical studies, and religious history, and popular titles in spirituality, ministry, and cultural criticism. Upcoming releases in 2024 include works from scholars such as Amy Peeler, Clifton Black, Helen Bond, Michael Horton, James Nagalski, and many more. Visit erdmans.com to order a copy today. Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to Christian life. I'm Dr. Beth Stavell, a member of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Claudia Herrera Montero, Candice Smith, John Stavell, and Kevin Hill. I'm Dr. Ryan Reed. Today I'm very pleased uh, to have with us Dr. Matthew Bates. Um, Matthew Bates uh, is a father of seven and a professor of theology at Quincy University. His popular books include Salvation by Allegiance Alone, um, published with Baker, um, The Birth of the Trinity, Oxford University Press, um, The Gospel Precisely Renew, and The Gospel of Allegiance by Brazos. Uh, When he isn't hiking, running, uh, baseballing, or chasing around the seven, he is co-host of the On Script podcast. Um, Matthew holds a BS in physics and an MCS in biblical studies from Regent College and a PhD in theology from the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Project by conviction, he enjoys the privilege and challenge of teaching in a Catholic context. Learn more about his books and conference speaking at matthewwbates.com. So this conversation will have three sections or movements. Uh, we'll begin by discussing Matt's scholarship, then we'll explore how this connects to Christian life and the life of the church. Lastly, we'll talk about what we call the marginalia. Um, these are fun questions that help us get to know Matt as a bit, a bit as a whole person. And while these marginalia are sometimes seen as the other things outside or separate from our academic lives, uh, we really believe that these aspects of our lives inform who we are as scholars and as people in important ways. Um, Matt, welcome to the Bridging Theology Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Ryan, Beth, thanks for having me. And when you were reading my bio, Ryan, and you got to the Regent part, I was like, I, I was like, yay, Regent, yay. I, I had a hard time. Uh, and I know Beth uh, also uh, is, yeah. you know, a, a Regent al- alumna. So um, yeah, uh, I do uh, have an affection still for Regent, uh, as, as for all the rest of my alma maters as, as well, too. But. Maybe especially Absolutely. for Regent, it sounds like. Yeah. I'm yeah. always jealous yeah. somehow of Regent. I, I went, um, somehow our family was... Uh, yeah, um, there we were on the campus, or somehow we were nearby, and so we went to the campus of Regent. And I always, it made me question whether I'd gone to the right seminary. Let me just say that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, hey Ryan, you can always go back. They have summer stuff. Like a lot of us go back. So <laughs> yeah. So you I, know, we're we're happy to include you if you ever want to visit. Yeah. I don't. I don't think my wife is going to let me do any more uh, train academics, any more school. So I don't know. It's probably the end for me. But anyhow, it seems like a great place. Um. So, so Matt, I uh, why don't you tell us a little something about yourself that most people don't know? Mm, something most people don't know. Um. Well, for my fortieth birthday, uh, my wife bought me a ripstick. Do you know what a ripstick is? This is not lipstick. That would be weird. A ripstick. <laughs> I don't know um, what a ripstick is. What is a that? A ripstick is a skateboard with only two wheels in the center that you balance on. 
Um, yeah. And so, um, I proceeded to learn how to rip stick and, uh, my, I think one of my kids already had one, uh, and I got decently good at it, um, until I was zooming down this hill, passed by these kids, like waved at him, said like, Hey, just trying to stay young. And then I wiped out on it and broke a rib. Oh no. Oh, no. Yeah. So there you go. That's my, that's my wow. does interesting it, story. Does it feel like, I don't know, like some kind of like waveboarding or yeah, like uh-huh. yeah you kind of have to like like kind of oscillate your back foot to get it going and then you like yeah then after that you kind of like are you know waving around weaving sort of like being on you know it's it's not as good as snowboarding but yeah it's, you know like maybe a very uh poor and lame version of that <laughs> we do a lot uh, of that it's in free. Canada, so you know <laughs> it's free unlike snowboarding right yeah so uh, are well, there- I, I just yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead, Beth. Is the ripstick no, was... days? I'm curious. Are they officially over, Matt? No, no. I have, I have, I still get on it occasionally, and um, and uh, I can't do it as well as my teenage um, sons can, but I, I will get on it still sometimes. Okay. And I can do it. Do I'm you, they have ones as well? Like, do you oh, yeah, do them together? Do. Yeah, we all have one. Yeah, and um, and I also inline skate, which I haven't done for years now, but I, I, I was pretty good at inline skating, and so I, I can get around on the wheels. Um, but yeah, no tricks or anything, just, just standard stuff, but yeah, there you go. That's fun. I love inline skating. So I've never done, I've never done, um, I didn't even know what the, the, the The ripstick, the ripstick is, Mm -hmm. but, um, we did something in Texas similar in terms of just like wave riding. So you have like, you'd stand sideways on like a board. And so anyways, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I, I, we, our neighbor has, I think, a ripstick or some form of it, and I'm always jealous of, of like he's, but you're impressive because he's, he, I think he's probably 16 years old, so yeah, yeah, you're staying young, yeah. So, well, yeah. it's all fun until you crack a rib, yeah. <laughs> so anyhow, well, one thing we were interested today, Matt, about is that you are um, a fellow podcaster. You're one of the uh, co-founders of the OnScript and co-host of the OnScript uh, podcast, and. Uh, We'd love to hear just a little bit about your experience of being a podcaster uh, and doing that. Well, hooray for Regent again, because my uh, co-host and co-founder, Matt Lynch, now a professor at Regent, uh, we started the podcast together maybe 2015 or 16. I don't know exactly when. So we've been going for a number of years, and uh, we mainly are in the academic space. Um, We do occasionally more popular books but they're usually by academics when we do more popular books but we we've kind of have tried to make that our niche um is to um you know work with um mostly books that are being produced by scholars Mm -hmm. so it's been a blast i mean i whenever i first did it i i didn't really think anyone would probably listen but hey it would be a great chance to you know meet some people in my discipline um you know, because I'm in a pretty isolating environment, and that's one of the really difficult things about being in a small liberal arts institution versus mm-hmm. being at a seminary or, you know, a major research university is I really don't have any colleagues. I have mm-hmm. one colleague in theology. Uh, he's great. Um, he's a Catholic theologian, but his interests are more systematic. And um, yeah, and, and like there's, there's just not really a lot of, you know, camaraderie in terms of, you know, scholarly camaraderie, at least. Sure, I, mean, I love yeah. him and he's a great person. But yeah, we don't get to bounce ideas off one another. Uh, a whole lot. So I missed that. Um, I missed that from graduate school and um, the podcasting for me was partly, hey, I would love to get to rub shoulders with other people in my field a little bit more and chat through mm-hmm. um, the, what they're working on and promote their work, right? As that was a 
kind of like I thought, well, this will give me a chance to, you know, um, help uh, other people identify what I think are the most important conversations happening in biblical studies. Mm-hmm. So it kind of mm-hmm. took off from there. And yeah, it's been it's been fun, but it did get out of control in the sense that we just didn't have the time for the investment that it takes. Um, so we invited more people to come on board as a way of shouldering the load. And I think we actually have seven co-hosts, I believe, mm-hmm. in the mainstream. Um, and then we have a, a Bible and archaeology stream that's a different stream entirely now. Um, so yeah, it's it's gotten to be a big enterprise. And, and Matt Lynch is the one who mostly um, deserves all the credit for the, the large-scale <laughs> architecture of it all. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for, thanks for sharing all of that with us. And I, um, one of the things we're really interested in is hearing more about how scholars become scholars. How do theologians become theologians? And so we're just, we'd uh, like to talk to you a little bit more about your journey. Um, in your book, Why the Gospel, which we're going to be chatting about quite a bit, um, you talk about starting out in physics and you mentioned you have that BS in physics and, um, and then your move towards biblical theology. And um, several of us actually started in sciences too. Um, a lot of the people on the Bridging Theology Co- podcast have that kind of dual interest. Um, I'd love to hear about the switch and like, what was that process like for you? Yeah, it's, that's such a long question that I, um, in the sense of like, it's my whole story. It's hard to hard to know how to compress that. But um, the really quick version is that maybe I was attracted to physics, partly because of certain kinds of, um, a certain kind of prestige that physics has in our mm-hmm. culture for how to know the truth. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that I came from a very f- a fundamentalist background within Christianity that did not value the intellectual quest at all. Um, mm-hmm. Other than read your Bible, <laughs> like that was the that was the extent of the intellectual quest. Um, but also, there was no real hermeneutical framework for how to read the Bible well, and mm-hmm. that left me with mm-hmm. a lot of questions. I think as I started yeah. my undergraduate career, mm-hmm. and so I thought maybe physics would lend the certainty to um, life that I was craving for. And I always have been fascinated by ultimate questions. And so physics, it touches into that. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, this is a reliable way to touch into that. And little did I know how philosophically and theologically loaded physics is, yeah. right? As there, there are certain kinds of um, yeah, philosophical and theological underpinnings to the whole enterprise of science. So just the more I learned about physics, the more I realized that it wasn't going to give me what I hoped it would. And then meanwhile, I took a New Testament class that really rocked my world when I was a sophomore in college. And mm. um, that um, really lit a spark under me, um, helped me clean up some sin issues in my life, um, prompted me eventually to like realize, hey, I can give my best intellectually to God and there's mm-hmm. there's something worthwhile there. And so I went to seminary um, after doing a couple of years as an electrical engineer. So I, I went into the, the working world for a bit and then to Regent. And that Regent, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe I might go on to be a professor. I had no idea. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, what what did I know about like biblical studies or any of that? I was an engineer. So I, I had no idea why, where the future would take me. I just thought at the worst, I'll get some of my questions answered and, you know, get equipped to be a lay leader in the church. Maybe I'll be a pastor. I didn't think I probably would, but I thought maybe, maybe a, maybe a professor, but who knows if that could ever work out. So that's enough of, I guess, my journey to answer your question, I suppose. That's so helpful. And I think, you know, it's interesting very rarely do we have people on the podcast who are like, I immediately knew when I was born that this is what I was going to do. And then I did it. <laughs> you know, it's often a journey and a process to kind of come to that. And I think sometimes the traditions we come from can affect how we make choices in that. And 
Um, I, I have a follow-up question that I didn't send to you, but I'm uh, just curious about, do you still see aspects of connection with the sciences in some of the ways you do what you do now? Um, that's a good question. I'm trying to put the pieces together still, and I do read um, still in physics sometimes and read certainly in philosophy. Um, and I, I read at the intersection of them. I'm reading actually a, a book right now. I can't think of the name of his author, but Princeton University Press title on um, the philosophy of physics. And the, mm -hmm. the volume is on space and time. And he has a second volume on quantum. And it's been really interesting to me. I've really been wrestling with it. I think it's made me wrestle uh, more than anything else that I've read recently. So um, I'm, I think I'm at a stage where I'm trying to integrate, but I haven't been successful. <laughs> Yeah, I need to teach I, a class. I need to just, I, I should teach a class is what I probably should do on science and theology. It would help me. It would force yeah. me to like, you know, articulate. Yeah, it's been interesting. We, um, at Ambrose, we've been doing a grant um, with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And that work of spending time with scientists has really pressed me to think about where those connections are. And I think, as you said, like when I was teaching a class and needing to do it, I was like, okay, now I'm actually needing to do this integration because my students mm. need me to. Um, yeah. But uh, again, I, I, I found that process really helpful. So I was just curious about what that had been for you. Um, yeah, thanks so much. You mentioned, Matt, something in your book about um, ch uh, logging being in the forestry industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, was one, I was interested in that part of your journey. What kind of, how did that fit into this whole picture of uh, moving into theology? Yeah. So my dad is a forester. And um, speaking of like not, you know, like having a model for like what you would do in the future, I didn't even yeah. know there was an idea like being a professor was completely foreign to me. I didn't mm -hmm. even know what a professor was mm -hmm. uh, or that they existed probably for a good portion of my growing up. Um, maybe in some vague way, I had some sense that there might be that title of someone somewhere. But um, yeah, so it was a very blue collar environment, small logging, farming community in Northern California. And my dad was the um, log buyer for the local mill um, and then started his own company later on, um, mm -hmm. which was just a forestry consulting company. Yeah. So um, as part of that, I eventually got involved in the family business, first working for a different forester in town. Um, and then when my dad started his own company, I switched over and started working for him. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I did a lot of, um, a lot of work in the outdoors and, uh, so developed a love uh, for, uh, uh, just creation, um, that I have always, um, connected with God well in creation. I love still to hike. My very favorite mm -hmm. hobby, um, mm -hmm. is to just be out hiking. So, um, how that informs my you know, like my theology, I don't know. I mean, um, you might've seen some small hints of, of that in, in the last chapter on reversing, um, uh, what's it called? Gospeling backwards with purpose, where I talk mm -hmm. about, um, you know, leading with truth and beauty and goodness, the transcendentals, um, mm -hmm. that can be a good way to gospel. Um, so yeah, some connections. Yeah, no, I was, I was just interesting part of uh, your story. Um, so uh, getting to, uh, this book, um, why the gospel? So you raised this question, right? Why the gospel? And um, I wondered if you'd be willing to uh, give our listeners just a peek of how you'd answer that question: Why the gospel? Um, oh, at, you're wanting me to spoil the whole book? You're like, <laughs> do, do I need to give a spoiler alert? It could be morning? a glimpse, not a whole. Yeah, um, yeah. I will. <laughs> I will. Well, that's, that's all I can really do, anyway. As um, you know, obviously, it's a, it's a multifaceted answer, as there are many reasons why. 
um, the gospel. But the book actually has a double intention in the title. Um, one is one intention, the more obvious intention is why did God give the gospel? Mm-hmm. Um, like what what is its purpose, right? Um, the second intention though is why is it still compelling today? Like why mm-hmm. why the gospel? Mm-hmm. Why would somebody respond to it? Um, is it is it still good news for the nuns and the duns? Um, mm-hmm. And so that's the double intention. And my um, my briefest answer that I think is a, a scripturally driven answer would be because we need a king. That would mm. be my briefest answer, but that answer alone um, is not enough. Um, whenever we say why the gospel, we need to say mm-hmm. more, but I think that's where we also have to begin. Yeah. Mm. You know, that actually connects to another topic I was going to chat with you about, which is a little bit about Jesus's kingship. Um, like you, that's an area of research that I, I did work in. I wrote my dissertation on that topic and my first book. Um, and so I I end up teaching a lot about kingship in different kinds of ministry settings. Um, and one of the pushbacks that I get frequently is around the metaphor of kingship as being kind of problematic in the world we're in, in part because kingship can often involve violence or oppression. And in one case, I was teaching in a context with indigenous Christians um, or like Native American Christians, if you're talking in the U.S. sometimes. Um, and they pointed to this idea of the history of pain around the idea of a king or a queen. Um, and I would love to hear more about how you respond to that. And, and why do you continue to find the, the image of Jesus as, as a king a really useful image? Well, I think that it's it's certainly a question I've gotten from others too, as I've taught on this. So I'm glad you're asking. And I do think that the Bible points us to um, problems with the kingship from the get go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whenever we we have the Israelites crying out for a king, you know, we have we have the statement at the end of Judges that there's no king, and so we have problems. And we have the Israelites crying out, and God warns them, like the king is going to oppress you, right? He's going to take yeah. your your people, and you're going to be his servants in a whole bunch of different ways. And um, this isn't going to work out the way that you would hope. Uh, and so when we think about that, even in the context of a like a, a fairly good king like David, right? We see that, okay, that can kind of work out. There's only mm-hmm. a semi-oppressive framework. Uh, and then when we have Solomon, we're like, okay, the oppression's deepened. And then we have the whole story of the failed kingship and the failed monarchies mm-hmm. by and large throughout Israel's history and Judah's history. So we see it doesn't work out very well in ancient Israel, even even with the advantage of God's revelation and God's sovereign laws to guide. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, I think, points us to um, the, the need for an ideal king. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that the Bible um, wants to push that idea forward, both in the Old and the New Testament, of the ideal king, right? Of um, mm-hmm. that, that one day, like, that God is going to, in, in some way, take over a rule himself. And uh, mm-hmm. that's the only hope for good kingship. So I think we can't look at kingship as we find it. Um, we have to say that kingship as we find it has indeed been oppressive. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an open question whether liberal democracies are, are going to do any better. Like, we're, <laughs> uh, like uh, at least the current opinion is that they are doing better. We'll see as Western uh, civilization continues its perpetuous slide. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we'll decide we want monarchies again in 500 years. I will, will, we will see, right, uh, where world history takes us. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I do think we need to point to uh, Jesus as the ideal king, a king that is that reveals himself to be radically for us, and especially mm-hmm. through the cross, right, yeah. that we learn the depths um, to which this king is for us. Absolutely. You know, that's actually um, one of the ways that I answered the question is almost always uh, a king who's crucified is a different kind of king. Um, and I think, you know, you're catching that in your description. I really appreciate that because I do think that 
Jesus is a different kind of king. And um, I really appreciate that in the book, by the way, um, Why the Gospel, the way that you talk about Jesus's kingship is so encouraging. Um, and I think uh, I think a lot of our readers will find that really helpful. Matt, just to follow up, you, I appreciate you mentioned the nuns and the duns. Um, as I, that doesn't speak for me, like obviously I'm, you know, here I am on this podcast. But I, I can imagine someone saying, "I don't want it." It's similar to what Beth is saying, but I don't want an authority in my, you know, even a benevolent king seems like a problem. Like the, I want to be the authority in my life. I, I don't want to have to bow to anyone. How would you start talking about the, the you're talked about how the why of the gospel is from God's perspective, but also in the, you know, our 21st century context is also something we need. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think that is a, an, a very, very common response to the gospel once it's understood what it actually is, would be a, a chafing against that, right? We don't mm-hmm. want an authority over our lives. Um, and I think, um, on the one hand, we could answer that question theologically, but also practically. I'll answer practically first and then circle around to theologically. Yeah. But I think practically, we need to start by telling stories about um, what happened to ourselves whenever we allowed ourselves to be king right, <laughs> or queen, right? Yeah. Whenever I'm like, yeah. okay, I'm sovereign over my own life. I'm just going to make these uh, my own choices. And then all of a sudden, I'm enslaved and addicted and and like have these desires that are out of control and I end up being, I, I end up finding myself in a place where I'm not flourishing. Like I'm not mm-hmm. being the human that I know that I, I could be if I could just be set free from these various problems that are plaguing me. So I think practically if, 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 if somebody is saying like, but I don't want an authority over my life, I think that we need to begin to speak into that by telling our stories um, about um, the about the, the poverty of our own kingship and the goodness mm-hmm. of Jesus' kingship. Um, theologically, I think that we can answer that by saying that the desire to to um, to have authority over our own lives, especially moral authority, is the very essence of sin. Mm-hmm. That the, that as Adam and Eve make their choice in the garden to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are specifically choosing to take sovereignty over the moral arena. Um, mm-hmm. They are choosing to be king of their own lives and to ignore God's kingship as as the great wise king. He gives law. And whenever we say, no, I'm not interested in you and your authority and your law, we are essentially saying that I want to be king over my own life. And it's, mm-hmm. it is the very definition of sin. Can I uh, can I ask you about this? Because I wonder if so. I often think about like Bob Dylan's comment, like or his song. Um, you know, you got to serve somebody. Like you're going to mm-hmm. serve someone, even if. And the question is really like, who are you serving? And so I wonder, like, when you think about when you think about uh, the garden and you think about this conversation, do you think that when we're serving ourselves, that we're in some ways also serving maybe forces or um, beliefs or other things that we're not realizing we're serving when we do that. Oh, sure. Are you, are you speaking about how this would connect to the demonic or to, um, yeah, to evil spiritual forces? Yes, I would say absolutely. We would, we would have to agree with that. And I would, I would say that there's orchestrated evil and that sin, um, I think as it's presented in the Bible on the one hand is, um, it's transgression against God. It's a violation. It introduces harm in the world. 
But we also have to be realistic that sin, um, sin as it's added up, becomes something more than it's than than the the single act, right? It's mm-hmm. it's it takes on a cosmic dimension, right? As as mm-hmm. Paul personifies it, for instance, in Romans, mm-hmm. and uh, we should translate that with a capital sin, right? It's a cosmic mm-hmm. force. Mm-hmm. So I think that it does become more than the sum of its parts, and mm-hmm. it's out of control. It, it crouches behind the door. It desires to have us, yeah. right? And it will master us if we don't fight it, right? As uh, as uh, God reminds um, uh, Cain uh, in uh, the sad story of Abel's demise. Yeah, this reminds me of some of our conversations. I know that we were going to talk a little bit about your work on allegiance. And so um, I know, Ryan, you had a, a question connected to that as well. Yeah. Um, no. So, yeah, we're kind of moving in that direction, like I said. But so um, you've talked about this connection between um, allegiance and salvation. You have a book titled um, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. I wonder if you could just help our listeners understand how do you think those things are related and how does this connect to the idea of salvation by grace alone? I'm sure you've had this question before. And um, by training, I'm a Calvin scholar and um, my sense, but I'm not, um, I don't want to speak for you, but someone like Calvin has really wanted to re- emphasize the receptivity receptivity in in receiving salvation and so something like allegiance um i think might make him uncomfortable but that not to say that calvin's right so i'd be interested to think about how do you think about the connection between allegiance and salvation matt yeah and i think your summary of calvin is fair to the degree i understand him that's more Mm -hmm. your expertise than mine um (laughs) but yeah so um, yeah, the word faith, pistis in Greek, um, traditionally is translated faith, belief, um, trust, like would be the glosses we tend to have. But in probably something like 25% of the New Testament occurrences of the word pistis, that it, mean, it means something more like faithfulness, mm-hmm. especially when Paul's describing the community like and the community qualities, but also in other contexts too that would speak of how to relate uh, to Christ or Christ's actions. Uh, faithfulness um, seems to be foregrounded. And um, like really the logic behind why we would want to translate loyalty or allegiance is on the one hand, we see it instantiated like in that way in Greco-Roman literature, like both inside mm-hmm. and outside the Bible, or like faith does mean, but the word pistis does clearly mean allegiance sometimes. And that would be the most exact translation we could use for the word. Um, but on the other hand, um, whenever we're, we're kind of um, thinking about like what it means to relate to a king or to a Christ, right? Like that, like if faith is what we, if, is how we need to respond to Christ, then once we understand that the term Christ doesn't just mean Jesus, that it means mm. a, a royal Messiah, it means a king, then we should see that the, that, that, that portion of that semantic range would become the technical term of Pistis as being foregrounded by Paul, that he intends loyalty or he intends allegiance. Um, how this connects to grace is, uh, this is such a huge question, and I would point people to John Barclay's excellent okay. work, uh, Paul and the Gift, um, for a full conversation. And I do a whole lot more on this. Um, actually, and I have a chapter on grace in my Gospel Allegiance book. I, I can't fully get into it here, but hmm. I would say that the the main thing that I would want to stress would be that like God, by sending the Christ, by sending the King, the Messiah himself is the grace, and that we, mm-hmm. we don't want to abstract grace away from history and dehistoricize grace. Mm-hmm. And I think that that often happens in conversations about salvation is like grace gets defined as like, well, it, it means that like um, God gives us something that we don't deserve. Um, the problem with that is on the one hand, it's true. On the other hand, it dehistoricizes the gift that God actually gave. Like God gave us the king. Mm. 
That's the gift mm. we didn't deserve. He gave it to us in history, right? Mm. And now we respond to it, and we respond to it by giving our loyalty to the king. Uh, so it doesn't deny the economy of grace. Like God has still graciously supplied what we need for our salvation. He supplied the king. Um, but I do agree with you that that would probably uh, make Calvin uncomfortable. Um, but I do think Calvin's wrong um, in terms of how he puts together his <laughs> yeah. surgery. I'll be hundred percent honest. I, was I, don't, I don't think. I mean, Calvin's a Calvin was a brilliant interpreter and like a genius for his day. And I, I do think that if Calvin had access to Second Temple literature and to things that we have today, he would reappraise. He would reappraise also. That's that's my thing, my thought. Just um, I guess going to another reformer, Matt, and I, I might we might circle back to this question, but. Um, if you think about like someone like Luther, um, um, like I think Luther felt that this discovery by um, justification by faith alone um, was this. It gave him a kind of freedom. It, it gave him a sense that he well, he was on this treadmill and felt like he. Um, how do you do you think? I think that so I'm. I guess I'm pairing up with two reformers, but like. Does this idea of how does this idea of allegiance relate to that? I think now I'm quoting Luther at you, but I think Luther would think might think that allegiance is going to make me feel like how do I ever know if I've shown enough mm. allegiance or something sure. like that? You yeah. know, like and so does it put you back in that place of okay, I think I'm being you know that that kind of sense that he had of I'm not, I don't know if I'm really doing all the things I should be doing. How do, how do you think about that? Yeah, I think that um, our reformers tended to intellectualize faith more than is warranted, and that mm. studies after the Reformation have shown, and especially even very recent studies, some of them, Teresa Morgan's book, I think of Nijay Gupta's recent book on mm -hmm. faith, um, they, they've shown that Peter Oakes also has done excellent work. But anyway, there's lots of voices in the conversation. Um, They've shown that though that faith, uh, pistis, was something that was relational and externalized, not something that was purely mental. Hmm. So when w there was a tendency to disembody faith or to see it as something that is more done in your mind, where the New Testament emphasis, I believe, and also the uh, emphasis in the Greco-Roman literature hmm. around the New Testament is that faith is something that was externalized, meaning it's something that um, somebody else would encounter, like you doing, like hmm. they observe your faith. It's an observable thing, um, hmm. and that it's relational. It connects to something outside yourself. Hmm. Um, so it's not something that's like an introspective thing or an idea of assurance isn't really deeply connected with it in the way the reformers tended to connect it. Hmm. Um, that, that being said, there are still assurance questions that we need to answer answer. And I think that there's a kind of a quantitative question that, that seems to be implied in Luther um, that I that I think he's barking up the wrong tree. Like the, the kind of like, well, how many, how many good works do I need to do? If I need to be allegiant, how allegiant do I need to be? Like, well, like how many allegiant acts do I need to do is almost what you, you would almost hear mm -hmm. Luther's concern. And I think that quantitative question is just the wrong question. It's a qualitative. Um, it's a qualitative matter. Um, mm. As um, like I would, I, if we were kind of thinking about this, we might say like, how how um, loyal do I have to be as a soldier before it's treason to my country? Like we don't ask that question. Like we don't say like what? Okay, like am I allowed to pass this document but not that document? Like like how mm. much aid can I give to the Russians before it's treason? Right? Like we don't we don't like you're, the the whole spirit of the question is wrong. Or yeah. like in a marriage, if I'm like, well, like I you know like Sarah, I'm, I want to get married to you, but I want to know like you know can I kiss another woman? Like how about can I French kiss her? 
Like, how about feel her up? Like, how much can I, how far can I go? I mean, this could get really bad, right? Mm-hmm. And um, if you're if if you're asking those kinds of questions before you go into marriage, like, do you have the right heart toward your wife? Mm-hmm. Right? That's not appropriate. And I think we recognize, like, to ask, like, what quantity of allegiance we need to enact is to to misunderstand the nature of what it is. What it's a qualitative to. thing, mm-hmm. I think, as we relate to the Lord. And so I don't think it, it throws us back on the treadmill of anxiety uh, in the way that Luther would fear. Something That's I appreciate helpful. about that comparison is that, you know, we do see metaphors throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament of, you know, the relationship between God and Israel and then like Christianity, Christians um, to to Jesus as being this marriage relationship, right? Mm-hmm. That's intimate and relational, right? Um, and so, you know, if we think about the idea of allegiance in light of that relational quality, um, I think that pairs up with the other metaphors used to talk about, you know, who is God and um, what does it mean to be the bride of Christ? Um, and so to me, that's it kind of feeds into that picture as well, which I find really helpful because um, I think other approaches can sometimes separate those kinds of images from each other rather than seeing them as connected. Yeah, that's that's well said. The marriage metaphor, but ma- many other royal metaphors too, like the mm-hmm. metaphor of the shepherd, and it goes on and on. Right, a lot of these are royal metaphors, but they're also metaphors that connect to other aspects. Yeah, and you're right; it's great to web them together and see the connections. So, I think speaking of connections, um, I always love to to kind of talk with authors about how they move from the different projects they work on and how they relate to each other. And, you know, your work on allegiance seems to be something that is threaded through many of the books you've worked on. Um, And I'm interested in, you know, why the gospel, this book, um, how it connects to your previous work, how you see it connecting um, around allegiance and maybe other, some of the, some of the other topics that you have in your earlier books. Yeah, it certainly presupposes um, the results in my previous books um, as a framework um, that, um, yeah, that Jesus is the King is is central to the gospel, and that we respond to Him with allegiance, um, and that is um, how we're saved. Um, but I think as I was conceiving the book, why the gospel? Part of the reason I wrote the book was I have an urgency for the church to reframe the gospel. I feel like this mm. is urgent work. Mm. Like we need yeah. our we need our pastors to be speaking differently about the gospel, and it's happening. I think we're seeing a transition, and it's not my work. Uh, I mean, my work may be a drop in the bucket, but it's N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight and, you know, mm-hmm. a whole raft of scholars who are working on related themes. And as we all collaborate and work together and and uh, maybe um, there, there's uh, an overall, um, yeah, I think, I think there is some change as pastors mm-hmm. are beginning to speak differently. But I think I was urgent, like, how can I accelerate the change, right? What can I do mm-hmm. to help people get where we're, why and where we're speaking inappropriately about the gospel? And I think that it was, to me, reducible down to the idea that that people like want to lead out with the gospel in speaking about the need for forgiveness of sins. Mm. Like whenever like people think about what's the purpose of the gospel, they're immediately like, I got to get forgiven. Like that is like for them, that is the real reason why God gave the gospel. And when we look at scripture, that is not why God gave the gospel directly. That That's like a more of like a uh, that's more like a result that ends up happening when God gives us the gospel, but it's not why God gave the gospel. Um, that's an, impreci- an imprecision. And helping people like break out of that stranglehold of seeing that it's all about the cross and that it's all about me getting my sins forgiven so that I can get rid of my guilt and I can be with God or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, helping people to have a healthier, more biblical framework around that was really my motivation. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that actually nicely transitions to the next segment of our show as we think about scholarship to the church and Christian life. Could you talk a little bit more about what the church has meant for you across your life and and how you see the New Testament being valuable for Christians? Wow, that's again, a, that's a huge question because um, I've, you know, I've grown up in the church mostly. I didn't start going till I was in junior high. And so that was, um, I think that's helpful as I do have a time when I, I wasn't churched mm-hmm. um, to kind of look back and compare. But even then my, my family, like my mom was kind of a private Christian. Um, but I think that maybe that experience early on was the most telling for me of the difference because I went from like a sense of like, okay, my family's kind of vaguely Christian and I know some Bible verses and I'm like, I've given my heart to Jesus, whatever that might mean to like actually being in the midst of a community that was larger than that, that was deliberately trying to inculcate Christian values, deliberately trying to teach scripture in a more holistic way, like deliberately having an agenda for how to live in the world, but also like an intense youth group community. Um, And it was fantastic and life-giving to me in every way. And that's been one of my best experiences of church. Uh, But ironically, um, I think also some wonky framework with all of that as it was like a a King James only fundamentalist church. And so on the one hand, I think some of the teachings were things that like left me with a lot of questions. And but on the other hand, like the the love in the community was undeniable. Um, Mm -hmm. And I still deeply respect and admire and I'm very, very grateful for my pastor, Henry, um, and his wife, Penny, who invested so deeply in me during those years. It It meant still means everything to me. Um, mm-hmm. Even if I have some theological differences now or um, things that I wouldn't agree with in terms of my, my upbringing, um, but I still just love those people. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think church means a lot to me, partly from that foundational experience. Um, and it's been ups and downs in my adult life. I mean, sometimes there's been some flashes and glimmers of that intense community, other times huge disappointments. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that the church is the answer to the world's problems as the church lives out Jesus's story. Um, and uh, and I, I, I believe deeply in the church in that way. Mm, thank you for that. So Matt, I, I mentioned I might come back to this. So we, we kind of already got there a little bit, but in light of this idea of salvation by allegiance, how would you like to see Christians live in light of that? Or how would, how would really the church knowing that really shape, um, how might it change um, the process of discipleship? Yeah, and I think so many Christians are kind of, um, especially, I think this is especially true of our generation earlier, like, you know, those baby boomers and whatnot, like, really, I think we're taught a very mental model of salvation, like, especially in Protestant circles um, and conservative Protestant circles, right, where really it's about, like, I need to trust Jesus, and it's really a mental activity. And then if I do that, well, then maybe I'll be regenerated and good works will follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a certain kind of danger there as all the heavy lifting of salvation is understood to be that mental kind of, like, trusting. Like, that's yeah. the really important part. If I did that, then I'm just kind of good to go. And everything that happens after that, like, well, if it was genuine, be some good works, like yada yada yada, right? But um, but there's there's not really any concern that like you're not actually saved. Like you did all that. Like it's all in your mind. Like as long as I have this little factoid right here in my brain, this right here that says that Jesus died for my sins and I believe it. Like I've actually come to trust it personally. Then I'm okay. Um, mm. notice how little of that it involves, right? How little of me, right, is mm. involved in all of that. Like I can cordon that off. I can be like over here, like beating my wife and being like, oh, right, well, it's okay. Jesus forgives me, 
right? I got a little, little trust module over here, like that's like kind of operative. And so it really can lead to hypocrisy hmm. and to a lack of holistic discipleship. And um, so part of my concern in writing the book is to help people to see that the process of discipleship is the process of salvation, mm-hmm. um, that we need to be transformed into the image. And that's something that's inescapably part of our salvation, mm-hmm. um, that there is no um, there is no salvation that doesn't involve like an, a, a posture of loyalty that's gazing on Jesus in such a way that we're moving toward Jesus and becoming more like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wanting to press that urgency on the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think that like I, I what I'm wondering is um if as pastors are are preaching, it seems like you really have a concern for what pastors are teaching. Um would you how might pastors um talk about to Christians of that that are kind of living these bifurcated lives? Like um how would you have pastors talk to Christians about that? Um, I would, I would talk a lot about allegiance um, yeah. to King Jesus. I would talk a lot about obedience. I would talk about grace as being, um, God's historically conditioned gift to us. It's the gift of the Christ, right? Um, mm-hmm. and that there is forgiveness. He's a forgiving King whenever we're disloyal, right? I'm wanting to remind them of that, but that, yeah, that we're on a journey. Like uh, I would use the metaphor of a journey a lot. That we're on a mm-hmm. journey of salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and this journey has a destination of conforming to the image, Right, and we may not see full com- conformity in this life, right? But we should all be on that journey of transformation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of language I would tend to use. Practically, like the tools, like well, I'd obviously be spending a lot of time in the New Testament, um, yeah. both theologically and in terms of the moral imp- the moral instructions. Uh, Sermon on the Mount, right, is is yeah. uh, gold. Uh, I would be spending time in those places. It's helpful. Yeah, I I think this is related to our conversation. Um, about yeah just how uh, the christian life works but how is being in a catholic context teaching um theology in a catholic context matt uh shaped your view of the church if at all but how how has it done that um it has probably given me a like a wider view of the church a little bit I and mean, as I, I would say that's probably fair um i see my catholic brothers and sisters as my brothers and sisters um not that everyone who is claims the Catholic label has committed themselves allegiantly to King Jesus, but Hmm. most of them have, Hmm. I think. Um, So, yeah, I I would say that it's maybe given me more of a real experience with a lot of Catholics. But Hmm. uh, at the same time, I would say it's actually deepened my convictions that Catholic soteriology is wrong um, Hmm. and that I I think there are some serious problems with it, especially like an ex opere operato view of baptism, like that Hmm. the baptismal act itself is what is saving, I think is deeply flawed. Um, so I, I've come to even sharper convictions as I've studied um, salvation intensely, and especially studying salvation in the context of Second Temple Judaism and the earliest Christianity beyond the New Testament, um, I think has uh, maybe helped safeguard me against um, like uh, excessive Catholic claims, as um, I think I have true—I've um, wrestled truly with the early Church Fathers in a way that— um, that often Catholic claims like say something along the lines of, but if we read the fathers, we see we'll see that we're all right. Like that everything mm-hmm. that we teach is true. And I would say, no, that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. that's Catholic, the Roman Catholic church's position cannot be supported from the early church fathers. It's mm. really interesting. Okay. Well, I'm going to take us on a little bit of a different tack for a second. Um, you know, I had the joy of uh, our days at Regent college, which we've already referenced a little bit together. Um, you know, and I know something that, 
about your work and also I think about your person is that you seek to encourage others. Um, and particularly, I think, around the value of Jesus's kingship, as we've been talking about. Can you chat about some of these different ways that you've been involved in that kind of encouragement, um, whether in the academic world or in the church and what that means to you? Well, that's that's nice, Beth. You're getting me confused with you. Um, you're you're the encouraging person. I think that's more um, that's more you than me. Um, I mean, I, I I try to encourage others, you know, um, through my teaching. But um, certainly, I've tried to stay involved in the local church. I think that's very important. Um, you know, as I've often taught Sunday schools or things like that over the years. So um, yeah, leading discipleship groups. Um, yeah classroom encouragement. Those mm-hmm. are the main ways I work. Trying to collaborate with other scholars too who are doing mm-hmm. similar work. That's wonderful. So uh, our last question, um, Eve, um, maybe maybe answered it in some ways, but I'd be interested in you personally, Matt. How are you seeking to live in light of your own research um, in terms of allegiance, um, in terms of um, knowing Jesus as the king? Um, what would you say to that? Well, I'm trying to be a loyal follower of Jesus in my daily life, trying to model that to my children. I have seven children. So um, practically speaking, some things we do, we do um, a very fixed bedtime routine. Um, We read the Bible together. Um, We um, sing two praise songs, Um, not three, two. Um, Sometimes sometimes we get exuberant, but it's not very often. We have done three, maybe even four. But um, usually two, it's (laughs) you have to have a routine. I mean, if it's not a routine, then the kids are always begging to do something more, right? And plus, (laughs) you know, if you only do two, maybe there's a hunger to do a third and that you leave that hunger unsatisfied and they come back and they want to sing the the next day, right? Um, Yeah. So we we do that. Um, and then we often we do a family read aloud together. Most um, we I would say we, we maybe achieve that half of the days. Um, that doesn't happen every day. The prayer and the song um, time and the scripture happens most every day. The read aloud maybe every other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like trying to disciple them right now. Um, yeah, we're we're actually doing a little discipleship group with um, our oldest two sons and their friends. This is a new thing, so we don't know how it's going to go, but we're excited um, about mm. uh, getting to connect with some of their high school friends, as we haven't had many opportunities to do that yet. Uh, and so, yeah, and for me personally, just um, obviously trying to to live a life of service to others is, mm-hmm. is um, of importance, and I don't know that I'm great at it. I'm trying. Yeah. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what maybe, maybe that was how we would all say, I'm trying to be of service and to be allegiant, right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on to some questions. Um, hopefully all these questions have been fun, but we these are intended to be fun questions um, right. to get to know you just a little more as a person. Um, so I'm going to start with, uh, what is a show or movie that you're really into right now and you would like, and what is it you love about it? See, so we just finished the All Creatures Great and Small series, which I believe is PBS. And mm. It was fantastic. Um, I read those books, oh, I probably in, I think my early married life, we read them. I think I read some of them out loud to Sarah. And uh, so, I um, mean, these are stories of a veterinarian and his, um, you know, his various adventures. Uh, and so th- those were just delightfully done. Um, and some of, some of the best TV, at least for me, that I've, that I've watched. 
Uh, we're watching right now um, Magpie Murders, uh, which is again mm-hmm. a PB uh, whatever, whatever is a PBS masterpiece. Is that the the, top of the name of these things? It's a six part series, and we're in part. We just finished part three, so I don't know who done it, but I want to know <laughs> who done it. They've succeeded in that. that yeah. All creatures great and small is a that's a great series. Oh, like they're fa- yeah. those are really beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Do you know? Do you know? It's a little bit of different. Uh, little Dorrit, just in in terms of that kind of beauty. I think we did watch movie. it, okay. but it's been a while. Um, I, we've we watched pretty much everything that's free and looks reasonably clean. And yeah. like my wife loves the period dramas, so mm-hmm. it's, if it's Victorian, especially, um, yeah, we usually have at least tried it out. She and I Which, would probably uh, have some fun together watching Victorian yeah. films. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like them too. I I I won't lie. I'm into. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, so Matt, if you could describe yourself in three words, what would those words be? Um persnickety. I'm I'm a little persnickety. <laughs> I love that um, that's your first word, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um I mean I was just exacting. Like I, I really am like a especially with my with regard to my work, I really mm. like I, I value precision in what I try to do. I don't know if mm. I always achieve it, but um, I, I'm persnickety about it. Like I don't, yeah. I don't want to publish something that is garbage or in or, or wrong or inexact. I want, I'm it's the scientist still left in me, I suppose. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, another word to describe me. I'm trying to think of what my kids would say. Um, um, what would they say? I, I don't know if they would say I'm funny. Um, I wish they would, but they would maybe say I'm like a, like kind of dorky funny. So we'll just dorky, right? Yeah. As um, you know, they're kind of like, oh, dad, you know, I'm like, yeah. hey, you know, I'll drop some dad jokes on them. Yeah. Um, so maybe maybe dork funny. We'll, we'll kind of com- combine those into two words. Um, um and uh, you know, I I I would say I'm a diligent person too. That mm-hmm. I'm I'm I tend to be on task and whatever the tasks are in front of me, I tend to be fairly relentless and goal oriented. So mm-hmm. I will go with um, persnickety dork, funny and um, <laughs> yeah. indulgent. Well, I will say the the dork funny part, our kids say that. Um, so we, we recently brought in a foster kid. So we now have three kids instead of two. And they say that um, my husband's humor gets more dorky with every child and you have seven. So yeah. perhaps that's just, oh, yeah. you know, that's just a piece of it. So it could be, it could be that. Yeah. It's the number of perfection and I might've achieved it. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. It's <laughs> funny. Speaking of dorky funny, I guess. Sorry. Oh, just, yes. uh, Sorry. Nothing like some dorky Bible humor. So, um, so what are a few books that you've read recently that really impacted you? Um, that you might encourage other people mm. to be reading books that impacted me that I've read recently. Well, I just finished um, David James Duncan, the river Y um, mm. and he's coming out with a new book. And uh, I loved his book, the brothers K when I read it in mm. college, this yeah. is years ago. And um, mm. his new book is just out and I, I've already bought it on Kindle, but I haven't read it yet. And I realized I had started, but never finished um, um, the river Y. Mm. Uh, so I went back and read that and it's, it, I, it started out kind of like, I was like, I could see why I quit. Um, cause I think I'd read, I realized I, I'd read the first five chapters before, but I didn't finish it, but it got far better after that, mm. uh, and had some very nice, um, both philosophical and theological reflections. 
um, on yeah the intersection of creational beauty, ecology, fishing, mm. um, God, and all and the, and all love, all that uh, mixed up and uh, good 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 book. Um, so I'll, I'll I'll mention that as one that I enjoyed recently. I'm trying to think on a more academic level if there's one that's really impacted me. I've been truthfully, it's been summer, so I've been reading fiction, right? Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I've been um, I just read um, the Lacanus trilogy, which um, is James Islington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you just want some brain candy, um, but it's also it has some depth too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it had a good, it had a ripping plot, and uh, it really did keep. It was a page turner. It kept me going. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think the first one is called like. Um, the shadow of things that were, or the shadow, uh, the light, mm. the echo of, I don't know. The titles are hard for me to remember. Um, but uh, the Locanus trilogy, James Islington, mm, I enjoyed those. So, yeah, I'm trying to think what else I read this summer. I read a bunch this summer. So, surely, I, but I forget everything that I read immediately. So, um, that's all I can immediately, that's all I can tell you right now. Um, those are some of the more recent. No, that's really helpful. That's great. Yeah. So, um, this one you can take in different directions, Matt. But uh, what is one thing you love about the city you live in now and or uh, the city you grew up in? I love the size of the city I live in now, which is 41,000 people, mm. um, I believe, mm. which is really a nice size. It's not too big. It's not too small. You can know people in town, but you can't know everybody. And there's enough shopping and activities and business. It's just a nice, it's a lovely size. Um Let's see. And so something I loved about where I grew up is uh, it was in, it was the absolute perfect climate. Like, I mean, you don't realize it when you live there, but no humidity, like every day is like, you know, blue sky and mm-hmm. just fantastic weather. Uh, this was Bernie, California. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in, nestled in the kind of like in the mountains between Mount Shasta and Mount Lassen in the forested region of Northern California. Just a stunning place to grow up. And uh, I miss it. I miss the pine trees. I miss the smell of pine trees. Um, I love that region, and I love I love the whole Pacific Northwest. I'm mm-hmm. I'm like addicted to it. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Exiled in mm-hmm. Illinois uh, currently, but there's some good things here too. Yeah, uh, yeah. I love the Pacific Northwest. Vancouver was amazing. I recently was in yeah. Seattle. It just makes me happy. Um, yeah, me so I get that. Yeah. And, and hiking and trees and all of this. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, what is the best compliment you've ever been given? Hmm. You know, that's, that's again, really hard is like, it depends on who it comes from, right? Is like the different ones have different meaning. And of course the, the people you're closest to whenever mm-hmm. they say nice things always means a lot for my wife, for my parents. But like from outside of that, I, I think honestly, I'm always deeply encouraged when I get, especially like notes from pastors that like have read my work and are, <sighs> you know, like saying, I think what, it, like the greatest compliment is like, I'm now, I've now changed how I'm preaching the gospel or teaching mm-hmm. the gospel yeah. and my congregation and i'm you know and i know that's impacting so many people whenever Mm -hmm. i hear that that Mm -hmm. the people who are sitting under that person's care is like fundamentally changed Mm -hmm. the most like what they're teaching about the most essential message that the the most grace greatest gift god has ever given Mm -hmm. and uh and not changed everything i mean but like the framework they're like they've they've introduced a different framework for how Mm -hmm. to understand the gospel it's still focused on jesus and on the you know his incarnation his his death for sins the resurrection but when people are going beyond that to talk about the mm-hmm. Jesus's enthronement too, right? It's part of the gospel and, and the call to give loyalty to King Jesus and, mm-hmm. and people beginning to kind of get that new framework and to think it through, um, then nothing is more satisfying to me. Mm. That's great. 
Yeah. So Matt, it's I been... put a couple of them on my fridge. Truly. I like that. When I got a oh, really, really good one, I took it home. I put it on my fridge. I'm like, yep, that, this one's going on the, this one's going on the fridge. Yeah. That must keep that like encouragement going as you keep writing. I find it sometimes when we write, we it can feel like we're writing into a void and yeah. being able to remember, no, there's a person on the other end of this who's going to receive this. Yeah. And I hope that it's meaningful to them. Yeah. And also remembering too, that like out of the few that do write or like there are many, many others who don't for whatever reason, they, they feel shy to do so or whatever, but you know, you've made a, a good impact on them. And then there's also the people who are like, this guy's a heretic, right? Um, that, those aren't the most encouraging. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I do get some of those too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I had a book review that said in that one of the books I had written um, that uh, I clearly wasn't a Christian. So, you know, <laughs> I, um, I'm, I've yeah. experienced such things, so I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're, we're focused on the best. Those are great compliments. So, Matt, it's just been a delight to have you on the podcast today. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. And we'd also thank like so much. Um, to thank our listeners uh, for joining us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you'd like to help us, please share the podcast with others. Subscribe on your podcast player. Connect more with us on BridgingTheology.com and on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds at Bridging Theology.